Yes, ego, Amy. I am, says the Lord. Hebrews 20, 20, we see Jesus, increment 290. And this is Wednesday, June 7th. And we will open with a word of prayer. Father, we do pray that as we open with prayer, that you will open our ears to hear, that you will open our eyes, that we may see our Lord Jesus crowned with glory and honor, and that you'll open our hearts to receive a word from him, a personal word from him today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 9, we will read our working translation as we have it so far, up through verse 7 to start, verse 8 to start, in fact. Now indeed, the first covenant had associated with it regulations for service and a cosmic sanctuary. A tent was furnished, the first room or compartment of which was called the holies in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, having the golden jar and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the first covenant, and above the Ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. These things being prepared just so, you'll remember that from our increment 288, compared with Galatians 4.4, into the first room of the tent, the priests, plural, keep entering all the time. Dia pantos means regularly, implying repeatedly, performing their, their service. That's the service of the Levitical cultus, the Aaronic priesthood, the priestly ministry. Jesus also has a priestly ministry, according to Hebrews 8, 1 to 2, as we'll see. But into the second compartment, once a year, only the archpriest. Remember that? Mano archierus. Only the archpriest. The Hebrew calls him the Kohen Ha Godel in Leviticus 16 17. Only the archpriest goes, never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that the road to the Holy of Holies is not yet disclosed while the first tent has standing. That is probably one of the most dramatic presentations of the necessity of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now keep in mind Proverbs 20 and verse 12, the Septuagint says the ear hears, and that reminds me of Hebrews 3.78. Today if you hear his voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit, don't harden your hearts. And then the second half of Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, and the eye sees. God, the Holy Spirit, makes clear the road to the Holy of Holies. He made it clear that the road to the Holy of Holies was not disclosed while the temple had standing. But guess what? The old tent has no standing anymore. So what? Well, 
now he makes clear the road to the Holy of Holies. We've been teaching on that. That road is a blood-paved highway, and it passes through the torn curtain of the flesh of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many, that is all, and this is my body which is for you. Torn for you could be the way we view this. So Proverbs 20, verse 12, in the Septuagint reads like this, the ear hears and the eye sees, both are the works of the Lord. That means the Lord, the Spirit. Now, all of what we said so far in verses Hebrews 9, 1 through 8, he says in verse 9, this is a cultic symbolic representation for the present time. That's the time of the writing of Hebrews. Parabole, eiston, chiron, here, etc., means the time, the present time, a parable for the present time or a symbolic representation for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Here we start to cross the threshold into the conscience and the cleansing of the conscience. As we've learned from a couple of increments ago on Wednesday, the June previous to this one, May 31st, I believe it is, we learned that the law brought with it an intense consciousness of sin in Romans 3.20 and 21, on into 21. In Hebrews 10.3, all the offerings, especially on the Day of Atonement, only brought an annual reminder of sin because they were inefficacious to take away sin, unlike the offering of Jesus Christ. Remember, shadows are determined by the substance. The substance is not determined by the shadow. So these are shadows as well as symbolic representations. If I cast my shadow, if the sun shines behind me and I cast a shadow in front of me, you can't tell what exactly what I look like by my shadow. In fact, the shadow will be cast, will be longer than the height that I project probably. And even if it projects the precise height, the sun placed in a certain place, it still does not represent me properly because you can't see my coloration, you can't see my expression, you can't see the essence and substance of who I am by the shadow. You can see a vague shape, a vague form cast by the shadow in the, by the light of the sun. And so these cosmic representations or these symbolic representations do not depict the substance precisely. They only give a vague shadow and form or shape and form of the substance. The priest going in once a year isn't exactly the substance. The substance is Jesus Christ going into the heavenly holy of holies, not of this creation, once and for all and forever. The shadow seems to show that only the sins of ignorance of Israel are offered for. And in the substance, Christ, he offered one offering for all the sins of all the world. He is the propitiation for the sins of the world. He is the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
The one who died and with him all died. The one who's justified and in his justification on the basis of his own faithfulness, all are justified on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness. And so the substance isn't the sins of ignorance of Israel are paid for, but the sins of the whole world of cognizance and ignorance are paid for. The, the shadow shows that once a year, the great archpriest alone went into the earthly holy of holies. The substance shows that the one great archpriest, Jesus Christ, God and man in one person, entered once and for all into the heavenly holy of holies, not with the blood of animals as in the shadow, but with his own blood as in the substance. His own blood, of course, being a depiction of his redemptive, reconciliatory, and propitiatory work of, on the cross, the accomplishment of it. Going into the Holy of Holies with blood is indicative of Jesus Christ going into the immediate presence of God with the accomplishment of our redemption in hand, with the accomplishment of reconciliation of the world in hand. And as the personification of that reconciliation, for Jesus is our peace. Hebrews 9.10 then, and we're moving into this area quickly, even though we will re, rehash some of the things that we've gone over again and again, probably. Hebrews 9.10, having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings. This can be compared with Romans 14.17, which says that these various foods and regulations about food and drink is not what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not really what the one-time offering of Christ is about either. So having to do with foods and drinks, only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, regulations involving the body, that's the outer man, the flesh, until the offering of the body of Jesus once for all, of course, in Hebrews 10.10. These regulations or this Levitical cultus is imposed until the time of the new order, literally the correction. And here's where we want to go into our delta phase of this message. Delta, D-I-O-R-T-H, omega O-S-I-S. D-orthosis. D-orthosis literally means the correction. It's been translated as the new order, or it has reference not only to the new covenant, but the new creation that's made effective by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Deorthosis belongs with other words in the scripture, and we've gone through this before. Apocatastasis, or the phrase apocatastasios panton, the, the restoration of everything universally. It goes with the word anakephaliosis or anakephaliosestai tapanta ento Christo, the instarare omnia en Christo, as Latin puts Ephesians 1.10. That's simply the summing up, the gathering up of all things in Christ under the headship of Christ, and that is universal recapitulation. And this word deorthosis goes not only with apocatastasis, the restoration of all things, and anakephaliosis, the summing up of all things in Christ, but it also goes with palingenesia, 
from the two Greek words. It's a composite word, pollen, again, and genesia, genesis. The again genesis, as we call it, te polygenesia. Jesus called it in the day of, or in the regeneration, speaking of a universal regeneration. That's when his 12 apostles or 12 disciples will be seated on 12 thrones, judging or administering over the 12 tribes of Israel, he said. Paul and Genesia, the new Genesis, the bringing in of the new creation, in other words. There's also the word diarthosis also refers to katalage, which is reconciliation. As Romans 5.11 puts it, it's apokatalaxai tapanta, again tapanta, the reconciliation of everything, also found in Colossians 1.20, apokatalaxai tapanta. Katalage is found in Romans 5.11, speaking of the reconciliation that we have received. Colossians 1.20 speaks of apokatalaxai tapanta, which means literally universal reconciliation. So someone will say, where do you find universal reconciliation in the Bible? Right there, Apokatalaxai Tapanta, Colossians 1.20. And so diorthosis belongs with other words like apokatastasis and anakephaliosis and palingenesia and katalage and apokatalaxai tapanta. It also belongs with words like apolotrosis, which is the universal redemption that was wrought in Christ Jesus, by which we are all justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, apolotrosis. God has made him, Jesus, to be apolotrosis, our redemption. Because Christ is our redemption and Christ is the all-inclusive representative of all mankind, redemption is also a universal phenomenon. So deorthosis belongs with all these words because it indicates the universal alteration of the situation of all men and all things that was brought about by the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus from the dead which is further punctuated by his ascension and present session and intercession for us at God's right hand. People say this all the time when something significant happens in their office or in the nation or in their family or in a personal life of someone. They say, this changes everything. Of course, it's an overused term and it's, exa it's exaggerated, but in this case, it's neither overused nor exaggerated. This changes everything. It's a statement that is literally true when we're speaking of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his entry into the heavenly holy of holies. The radical universal alteration of the situation had occurred in his self-sacrifice at the termini of the eons. The radical alteration of the universal condition, including the somatic status of all human beings dead and alive, will occur in his inevitable second appearing in Hebrews 9.28. So deorthosis is the correction. Deorthosis as the correction contains resonances of another word, Another delta word, dikaiosis, D-I-K-A-I-O, 
mega O, S, I, S. Dikaiosis, another delta word. Dikaiosis, so I'll say that again. Deorthosis has, meaning the correction, contains resonances of the word dikaiosis, which is found in Romans 5.18. Through one act of righteousness, dikaiosis, for all men resulted in the dikaiosin, dikaiosin, zoes of all men. That's Romans 5.18. Dienos, dikaiomatos, eis pantos anthropos, eis dikaiosin. You'll see it in print, dikaiosin, zoes. That is, through one righteous act came one righteous act of one man, Jesus Christ, came the justification of all mankind. In fact, it's called dikaiosin zoes, justification and life, or life-giving justification for all mankind. That's Romans 5.18. There is no more centrally important verse in the Bible than that, that verse right there in Romans 5.18. Dikaiosis, then, usually translated justification, and rightly so, is by definition salvation by the righteousness of God, quite simply. It's salvation by the righteousness of God, by his saving justice. We've said before the New Jerusalem Bible is courageous enough to translate saving justice in many places of the Old and New Testament. Now, here's where I want to shift gears into something extremely important because objections to universal salvation and universal justification often come in the form of someone saying, God is just, so what about God's justice? What about God's justice? Yes, he is love, but he's also just. God is loving, but he's also just. And that what they mean is God not only takes people to heaven, but sends some to hell too. That's what they mean by that. And of course, that is a perversion of God's justice. It is a corruption of the gospel and a whole lot of other things that I would be, I'm too mad. So if I say them, I will use swear words. Dikaiosis, usually translated justification, is salvation by the righteousness of God, by his saving justice. The primary function of God's justice is justification. And we're beginning to answer that objection. What about God's justice? Okay, here it is. The primary function of God's justice is justification. In fact, when he's called God who justifies in Romans 8.34, that, that seems to indicate that his soul just function is justification. So, Romans 4, 5, he is called God who justifies the ungodly. Well, you say, well, what about God's justice? What does he do to the, the ungodly? He surely condemns the ungodly, doesn't he? No, it says God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. In Romans 8, 34, he is God simply. He is simply called God who justifies. 
Who is he that condemns? God who justifies. Who is he that accuses you? Christ who died. Christ, the one who died, and when he died, all died, and when he died, was justified by his own faithfulness. We all died and were justified by his own faithfulness. Who is he that accuses then? The only one that has the right to accuse is Jesus Christ, and he became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. So who can lay any charge to God's elect. Who is going to charge us? Who's going to accuse us? Well, there's only one that has the right to. Anyone else better throw the stone down because you don't have the right to cast the first, the second, or any other stone. Who has the right to lay a charge to us? Jesus Christ. What did he do about our sin? He died for our sins. So who is he who accuses Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but do his charges stick? Does his accusation stick? No. The New Covenant community is the Teflon church. No charge will stick. So, dikaiosis, usually translated justification, and rightly so, speaks of the primary function of God's justice. In both Romans 4.5, he justifies the ungodly, and Romans 8.34, he is simply God who justifies. In both cases, the identification of the God who justifies is allied in some way with Christ who died. Somewhere in juxtaposition, close juxtaposition in both of these cases, Christ who died or Christ as the one who died is very close to God who justifies. In Romans 4, 5, God who justified the ungodly, justifies the ungodly, is allied with, and allies is a good word to use on June 7th because it's right after June 6th, which was Delta Day, D-Day, when the allies stormed the beaches at Normandy and was the beginning and the end For the Nazis. So, in Romans 4, 5, God who justifies the ungodly is allied with Christ who died for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. In demonstration of the unimaginable love of God. Romans 5, 8. Christ's death was the death that brought about the reconciliation of all humanity while they were at enmity with God. Romans 5, 10 to 11. In Romans 8, 33, God who justifies. Who's your God? Oh, my God is the God who justifies. Who's your God? My God is the God who condemns people who deserve it to a living hell forever and ever. Really? You're kind of satanic. All right. In Romans 8.33, God who justifies is strategically put side by side with or allied with Christ the one who died in 8.34. God who justifies, 8.33. Christ who died, 8.34. God who justifies the ungodly, Romans 4.5. Christ who died for the ungodly, Romans 5.6. If we were reconciled to God while we were still in active hostility against God, 
then how much more are we going to be saved and are we being saved having received the reconciliation and acknowledged it and aligned ourselves to it? So, no one can ever bring a charge against us, not a successful one, before God. The primary function of God's justice is justification, an act entirely in line with God's love and with God's great mercy. So don't say to me, yeah, that's his love, but what about his justice? Because his justice is aligned and allied with his love, and never otherwise. Never is it separate from his love. So, his death, Christ's death, brought about reconciliation of all humanity once in enmity to God. In Romans 8.33, God who justifies is strategically and on purpose by the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, put side by side with Christ the one who died in 8.34. I'm going to say it again. The primary function of God's justice is justification, an act entirely in line with God's love and God's great mercy in Ephesians 2.4. No one in Romans 8.32 and Romans 11.32. No one can ever bring a successful charge against us, that is, a charge that sticks before God, says Paul, because God who justifies, in Romans 8.33, it is God who justifies. And no one can ever rightly condemn us because of Christ who died. And now we're back to 2 Corinthians 5.14. Since one died for all, all died. Bringing in Romans and the reasoning of Romans, the one who died was justified in Romans 6, 7, back to Romans 3, 26. Consequently, the all who died when he died, that's all human beings, were justified. It is equally orthodox, doctrinally, to say, when Christ died, all died. And when Christ was justified, all were justified. And he was raised for our justification, which means that we received a justification of life. Death meant that we were justified, because all who are living cannot be justified. So we died, and in our death, with Christ, we were justified. D Dikaiosis, therefore, dikaiosis, dikaiosis has several nuances of meaning. It means, first of all, to be saved by God's righteousness and by Christ's righteous act, his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross, also known as his faithfulness. Justified. <clears throat> is associated in the first half of Romans with phrases like justified by his blood, Romans 5.9, saved by his life, Romans 5.10. It is in the phrase the justification of life, which is to all human beings through the one righteous act of the one man, Jesus Christ, 
Romans 5.15 and 5.18. It's used in Romans 3.24, justification is, where the same all who sinned, in, according to Romans 3.23, are justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, apolutrosis, called in a shortened version simply lutrosis in Hebrews 9.12, is that which was discovered and brought home by the explorer Jesus, as it were, by a metaphor in Hebrews 9.12. By his blood, the sacrificial death of Jesus, in which he endured death for everyone by enduring the cross. Hebrews 2.9, Hebrews 12.2. That's being another word, lutrosis or apolutrosis, redemption, being another word to indicate the universally salvific impact of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and his resurrection are both features of one event called the Christ event. We think of the crucifixion of the resurrected Christ and of the resurrection of the crucified Christ. Athanasius, the theologian, was right to say that the resurrection was stored up in Jesus' death in the cross of Christ. The very blood that emerged from the torn side of Jesus on the cross testified not only to his death, but to his inevitable prophesied resurrection from the dead. His real resurrection was a resurrection from the real dead, from being really dead. So again, to refer again to Romans, Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was handed over for our sins, that is, to be the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world if we bring in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, the ultimate sin offering to deploy the symbolism of the Levitical cultus, and he was raised up on account of our justification. Let me say that again because it's a crowded sentence. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was handed over for our sins to be the propitiation for our sins, the sins of the whole world, the ultimate sin offering, and that he was raised up on account of our justification. Romans 4.25 meaning the justification of life to all. Raised up on account of our justification means he was resurrected from the dead because he was justified in his death as a result of his faithful obedience to the extent of death. In a profound sense then, dikaiosis, dikaiosis in a profound sense, dikaiosis can be defined as salvation by God's righteousness through Christ's faithfulness. Justification is being made righteous by God. Justification by definition is a being made righteous by God in Christ because the sinless Messiah became sin so that we, the world of fallen humanity under sin, would be made the righteousness of God in him. Similarly then, dikaiosis can also mean saved by God's saving justice. What about God's justice? Yeah, I'm saved by it. So are you. 
his saving justice. In Luke 11:42, Jesus chided the Pharisees for, quote, neglecting the justice and love of God. All one thing, the justice and love of God, the justice and love of God, the love and justice of God. You neglect it. Today, those who use the name Christian sometimes neglect the justice of God by neglecting the true meaning of God's justice and its saving function. Let me say that again. Today, those who use the name Christian, preacher, pastor, reverend, holy reverend, most holy reverend, most holy reverend Dr. So-and-so, those who use Christian words, theologian, pope, bishop, cardinal, monsignor, Father, teacher, rabbi, imam, maybe, that aren't Christian or so-called Christian. Today, some people neglect the justice of God by neglecting the true meaning of God's justice and its saving function. They, and I'll say this to include myself, we sometimes consider terms like justice and judgment only in a negative and punitive or retributive sense. Now, it's often used that way. God sometimes judges unto destruction. I won't deny that. But he always judges, even with destruction, with a view to salvation. In fact, sometimes he saves by destroying and destroys by saving. But it's also used in conjunction with the love of God as a judgment unto salvation, even eternal salvation, even universal salvation. In Matthew 23, 23, in a parallel passage, Jesus blasts the hypocritical Pharisees for bypassing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. There... Justice and mercy are juxtaposed, not as opposites, but as virtually equivalent. I'll say that again. There, Matthew 23, 23, justice and mercy are juxtaposed, not as opposites, but as virtually equivalents. From the human side, they didn't exercise judgment or justice, which would have involved showing mercy to others than themselves. That's like courts today who do not show justice. They coddle criminals and they crucify innocents. They imprison innocents because it's all political, it's all subjective, it's all pure evil. So from the human side, these Pharisees didn't exercise justice or judgment, which it would involve showing mercy, oddly enough. You didn't do justice to that person. Well, how could I do justice to that person? By showing them mercy. That's how you show justice. 
And so, from the human side, they didn't exercise judgment, which would have involved showing mercy to others than themselves, though they were very merciful to themselves. Regarding the divine, they didn't regard God's judgment as merciful, just as today many who hang the label Christian around their neck don't regard God's judgment to show mercy to all. Be careful what you hang around your neck isn't a millstone. Like many in courts of law are tying a millstone around their neck while they rejoice in their calling of things like abortion, sacred. They call that sacred now, sacred. Now, regarding the divine, these Pharisees didn't regard God's judgment as merciful, just as today many who hang the label Christian around their neck don't regard God's judgment to show mercy to all. Neither, and that's what God said about mercy and about judgment, he shows mercy to all. Neither do they, and I'll give this, we, because I include myself as Christian. Neither, neither do we give due attentiveness to the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Christ by which all mankind are saved, choosing rather to make eternal salvation a matter of their own individual response of faith or their own obedience of faith rather than Jesus' faithful obedience leading to his death as the sin offering so that many, that is all, would be made righteous in Romans 5.19, even made the righteousness of God in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 belongs juxtaposed with Romans 5.19. Under this rubric, God who is called the judge of all in Hebrews 12.23, was judged for all in order to show mercy to all in Romans 11.32. Let me say that again. Under this rubric or under this title that we're dealing with, the justice of God, God who is called the judge of all in Hebrews 12.23 was judged for all in order to show mercy to all. God is one and one died for all. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, in connection with Romans eleven thirty two. God who is one is the one who died and in whose death all died. Jesus Christ is the one God and in his death by which he was justified, the all of humanity died and were justified with the justification of life. For in Adam all die but in Christ, so in Christ, all will be made alive. Just as there is a universality of death in Adam, there is a universality of life in Christ. Once we were all in Adam, now we are all in Christ. So to pass from this life, whether we believed or not in this, during the course of our life, we go into the wonderful care of our great shepherd. This verse that I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, is ultimately a reference to the radical salvific alteration of the human condition that is rendered inevitable by the alteration of the human situation in Christ's death and resurrection. I urge you to read the notes that will accompany this message and that you will study them if you want to be proficient in the gospel. God, the judge of all, was judged for all. God, the judge of all, justifies all. God, the judge of all, is God who justifies the ungodly. 
God justifies all the ungodly because the only righteous one died for all the unrighteous in order to bring us to God, his Father, with whom he is one. 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 God, the judge of all, is called simply God who justifies. Once again, God, the judge of all, who justifies all. That's who he is. God, who justified his son, justified all in his son. This is not only the justice of God, it's the justice and the love of God. It's the justice of God's mercy, his universal mercy. For God shows mercy to whom he wills to show mercy, and he wills to show mercy to all. God only shows mercy to those whom he wills to show mercy. What are you going to say about that preacher? I'll tell you this, questioner. God who does will to show mercy to whom he will show mercy has willed to show mercy to all. And he will show mercy to all and has effectively done so in Jesus Christ and him crucified. This that I'm talking about is the salvific truth that angels desire to thoroughly investigate in 1 Peter 1.10-12 and Ephesians 3.10. They can only know it by the church. And this is the reason why the cherubim of glory overshadow the place of expiation, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of angelic fascination and worshipful adoration of the crucified Christ. In a different consideration, God, the judge of all, entrusted all judgment to Jesus because Jesus is the son of man of Danielic fame in Daniel seven thirteen to 14 compared with John 5, 27. The Son of Man executed this trust by being judged, by receiving the judgment due to all who sinned. The judge became the judged, and by this same grace of the one man, Jesus Christ the Lord, Jesus the Lord became the slave, the priest became the offering, the once and for all sacrifice which secured reconciliation, redemption, justification, and sanctification for all of the human race over the course of all time and redeemed history itself in the fullness of times. You'll see that. Dikaiosis also means rectification. Rectification. Some people don't like the word rectification because it means not only declaring to be right, but making right, setting right. Dikaiosis then also means rectification, a setting right of what went wrong. In the biblical sense, a radical setting right of what had gone radically wrong with all of humankind and all the world, all of creation. In this sense, it means a corrective alteration. Deorthosis, then, Hebrews 9.11, another 9.11, means a corrective alteration of an undesirable or, in this case, indescribably catastrophic situation. It is the correction of an indescribably catastrophic situation, that of humankind under sin, threatened with eternal death and condemnation. Consequently, this nuance of meaning of dikaiosis is close to its synonym, deorthosis, the correction, a.k.a. the rectification. So I'll close by reading Hebrews 9.11. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. There's the change or alteration of the situation and are coming. There's the alteration of the condition. 
through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is not of this creation. Jesus is that tent. He tented among us. He is the all-inclusive tent. We're all under that tent, under his tent. It's a tent made not by human hands. It's a tent of a new creation, a new creation that was instigated not just by his incarnation, but by his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then punctuated by his ascension, his seated, being seated at the right hand of the Father, his present session as the royal priest, and his current intercession by which he saves us all completely and brings us ultimately to that radical change of condition and so we can say with each other like they said in the old westerns meet you at the pass so thank you father in jesus name amen